Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn, Focus Compounding, the number one value investing podcast in the world, soon to be the number one YouTube value investing channel in the world as well. Sitting next to Jeff Gannon. Jeff, how's it going today? It's going very well. Who's going with you? It's going great. Hope it's going great for everybody else as well. If you're listening on the podcast side of things, hit that subscribe button. If you're listening on YouTube, watching us on YouTube because this is an interactive video, hit that subscribe button as well. Having a lot of fun doing everything that we're doing, and the support means the world to Jeff and myself. We are going to be in Nashville uh, the 22nd through the 24th, Pittsburgh the 26th through the 29th, Philadelphia the 30th through July 2nd, and Delaware City July 3rd through the 5th. We'll be in that general area. We're also going to be in New Jersey. We're just going to be all on the East Coast. So we have a very long trip planned, probably going to be over two weeks. Um, so if you're in the area and you're a prospective investor, we'd like to meet up with Jeff and myself, talk about stocks see the flannel in person, mm-hmm. reach out to me, Andrew at focuscompounding.com or my DMs are open on Twitter. So in today's podcast, we're going to be talking about um, the ways where you could get your returns in stocks. Like how do you do the math behind it? Okay. We talk a lot how you could you could have the growth, you could have the multiple expansion, or mm-hmm. you could have um, some sort of dividend, right? Mm-hmm. Whether you could think about being like a free cash flow yield or actually paying the dividend out to you, right? Mm-hmm. So let's go over a few different examples on like, I guess, how you could actually value the stock from like a really like a high level overview, but so people could really get a feel for the way that we think about it and the way that um, they could think about it as well if they want to. Sure. So we'll use OTC markets first. So OTC markets in a previous podcast, we talked about how it had a P of 25 or something. Well, that technically was true when we said that. Uh, I was saying that I would look at it a little bit differently. And basically, as we'll see, that way is to talk about it having about a 20 times Mm -hmm. um, free cash flow type um, price. And the way you can see that as EV to sales, if we look here, is 5.5. And yet free cash flow margin is 27%. So what that would mean on average is that, um, and that was with some higher taxes in there too, but that your um, free cash flow, if your free cash flow is 27% in general, uh, we can do this a couple different ways. I'll show you a way that's uh, fast is um, you can estimate it by doing tw- uh, 27.4% free cash flow margin divided by 5.5 EV to sales is going to give you a number, which when you uh, invert it will help us figure out the yield on that, which will give us an, a, um, a PE equivalent. So, so do 27.4 27. divided by 5.5, right? So that's 4.98. Now we'll just round that and it's 20 times because a 5% yield is 20 times. So it's about 20 times free cash flow if we assume that free cash flow will be on average the same that it was historically. And for people that don't know, he's taking 100 divided by 5, you get 20 times. He's doing the inverse of it. Mm -hmm. So um, yeah, 1 divided by 0.05 is 20. So uh, if we look at um, the, how about key ratios that we look at here, okay? Um, We can see that the key ratios show us the free cash flow margin at the bottom. And the free cash flow margin has tended to be the number that they said there. Uh, uh, sorry, higher up. Um, oh. But in recent years has been at least as high or higher. So we were a little conservative on that. Um, now, that would mean that you want, let's assume that you think it will trade at 20 times free cash flow. Okay. Then the easy way to do the math is that your return in the stock will be equivalent to your growth plus the amount of free cash flow that can be used. Uh, for things other than growing the business. So that gets a little complicated. But if we look down at the bottom here, we see year-over-year growth and revenue. So, uh, there we go, year-over-year growth revenue. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we see that number. And then we can also look in the um, the homepage thing, the overview. Um, 
Wow, this website's great. <laughs> Quick FS. If you want to sign up, make yeah. sure you tell them you come from you came from Focus Compounding. Yep. So it's grown up by almost ten percent or something. Yeah. But in recent years, it's grown a little bit slower than that, right? So in recent years, it's grown by two percent to as high as like nine percent or something. Like yeah. That. Yeah. So not all that different, but uh, a bit lower than it was before, which is closer to ten percent. So, but then the other question is. Do you have to reinvest to grow the business and everything? And from that, we can look at the balance sheet to get a feel for that. So if we look at the balance sheet, we'll see over time that the companies, um, uh, what we really need to see is the uh, equity number. Mm -hmm. So if we look, total assets is not important. What's important is the shareholders' equity. So how much shareholders' equity gone up over time? We can quickly estimate this by going from what, eight? Uh, sorry, uh, five or eight. What's that in the beginning? Eight. Uh, eight. Yep. Eight in 2009 up to 18. 18 in 2019. But cash and equivalents went from what, five in 2009? Yep. To 29. Nine. I'm sorry, 28. 28. So because cash exceeds equity, uh, we can actually quickly figure out that this business has no um, tangible, uh, net tangible assets. When I say net tangible assets, I mean assets which are paid for by shareholders and are not cash. They're actually investing in the business. So there's no investment in this business. Mm -hmm. As a result, all free cash flow either shows up on the balance sheet or has to be used to buy back stock or pay dividends. So let's look at the cash flow statement. So if you I was look, to say you see that as well in their PPE, their capex. Yep. Mm -hmm. So if you look, their net um, issuance of common stock has been mostly negative. Mm -hmm. And then their dividends has been um, also they've paid dividends. Mm -hmm. So you get dividends, you get stock buybacks, but then you get this buildup on the balance sheet. The big question for um, OTC markets, do you know what it is for determining what your future um, returns will be? Um, what is it? It is. Take a sip. What will they do? With their cash? With their cash. Mm -hmm. Because if we look, how much has their cash built over the years? It's gone from, what do we say, 5 million to? To 28 20, or to 29. Yeah. yeah. So it's built up. And the 5 million was also surplus back then. Uh -huh. So they have almost 30 million that they don't need. Now let's Because it's self-financing. This company is able to grow without need of reinvestment. Yes. So let's look at the overview. So there's about 30 million in cash they don't need. The market cap is 358 million. Mm -hmm. So they have the ability to buy back stock mm -hmm. um, of over... Uh, of you know eight nine ten percent of the company mm -hmm. without even really taking on debt and of course if they took on debt the way most companies do which let's say um should we write a, write a letter to this board should we write a letter demanding to the board them to buy well, that here, like stock? i'll give you an example let's go to uh income statement i think has does income statement even on it or does just key ratios uh key, key ratios, ratios. we can do key ratios they have um oops they show their EBITDA margin in recent years. I just Year did the margin. Growth, so per up, share. Yeah, if we go up, we'll just see their EBITDA margin in recent years has been 37, 36, 32, mm -hmm. something like that. Okay. So about one third, we'll say. So that means that they could have they could probably borrow the same amount as their revenue, just so people understand that. So you can it's not difficult for a company like this, but many companies, to borrow three times debt to EBITDA. So you have cash of about 30 million, plus let's look at what their sale are. The revenue is 60, yep. 62 million. So I would guess the company can borrow 60 million without any problem. And then they have about 30 million. So that would be about 90 million. And that's one fourth of their company size. So you could recapitalize the company easily and buy back 25% of the stock. Why I mention this is it's important because you're at a net cash position mm -hmm. like this. Not that management will do this or something, but you have to understand that it's also how a buyer would look at it. Mm -hmm. So it is a question of like, will you ever get that return? Don't count on it necessarily, but I wanted 
to show you ways that you can make a return, mm -hmm. and that is one of them. Um, on the reverse, of course, if they buy something stupid, um, let's say they buy something that creates no value and they spend $30 million on it, well, then that's just like burning the cash, mm -hmm. right? You could look at their return invested capital and see that it's negative yep. in most years, which shows that they have some sort of float going on, right? Yes. And from knowing the business, what are they doing that's giving them that negative uh, invested capital? Right. Now let's look at an upside one where I talk about the stock a lot. People ask me about it. I don't necessarily think it's a great investment. That's Omnicom. And people ask, why don't I think it's a great investment? It's not that I don't think it's cheap. Um, it's $55 a share. It would be cheap even at, say, 65 or something. The historical free cash flow margin is about 11%, whereas the EV to sales is 1%. So that means that after taxes and everything, you're getting about an 11% yield, which is great. So if you buy this stock and it doesn't go up or down in terms of price to sales, that is, um, I'm using EV to sales, but actually price to sales is a little more accurate. For an ad agency, you really shouldn't factor in the the um, borrowing to some extent. Uh, so because of that, if we can just do the math that way. So take 10.8 and divide by 0 0.8. So this is a leverage basis I'm giving you. Uh, 13, right? Mm -hmm. So this is a business that is on a leverage basis could have a 13 to 14% return. That return being made up of stock buybacks and dividend payments out to you. So if the stock didn't go up at all, it stayed at this level, you'd back quite a lot of stock. Um, and your dividend yield would be high. In fact, we can look, let's look at the uh, key ratios. Look at dividends per share. Uh, where do we have? Oh, here we, we go, down here. Down here. Yeah. How much was it most recently? $2.60. Right, $2.60. Payout ratio, 43%. Right. So that's almost a 5% yield mm -hmm. that you have there, yeah. So it's it's a high 4% yield. Um, so you're getting almost 5% back just from that, and then it's a question- Just from much, the dividend. Just from the dividend, and then how mm -hmm. much are the buybacks? So let's go to the income statements, get an idea for how much they've dropped their share count over time. Okay, so it's gone from $304 million to $221 million. Right, now a lot of people like to use that historically- um, but there's an issue, which is the actual rate of buybacks is going to depend heavily on the stock price. So a stock that buys back its stock becomes much more attractive the cheaper it gets. And this is a concept that people have emailed me about, have uh, kind of either not understood or argued with me about. But the point is that it's not like growth. A company's growth organically is independent of whether it's overvalued or undervalued. But the effectiveness of a company's buybacks are heavily dependent on its stock price, which means do not buy do not buy stock in companies that have that are expensive and buy back their own stock. And do it in companies that are cheap and buy back their own stock. And a big reason for that is like let's look at your upside here. My upside, if we look at it, is that they've basically been paying about the same amount in dividends as um, buybacks. Now, if we look at the, pay, can we see the payout ratio? Let's look at uh, key ratios and see. Um, if we look down, they have uh, yeah, the payout ratio is the bottom one. So what's their payout ratio? Forty three percent. Okay, so forty three percent. Now at, at Omnicom, their earnings per share understates their free cash flow. Free cash flow is probably more like one hundred five percent. So because of that, about sixty percent of your return will be buybacks, mm -hmm. and about forty percent dividends. On that basis, we know that if their dividends are like two dollars some cents a share, mm -hmm. they're actually going to buy back at least three dollars a share probably. Now maybe not during COVID, but on average. So let's try that. Let's say three dollars in buybacks if we go to a calculator, and then we said the price is what fifty five dollars a share. Yep. Okay. So three divided by fifty five, they could buy back five point five percent of their stock this year. Mm -hmm. So you have about a five percent dividend yield and about five percent buyback. So you get a ten percent return right there. Yes, but here's what's critical. If the stock price and the dividend stay low, 
you'll get about a 10% return if they don't grow organically. Now, there's re this is my concern with the company. They won't grow organically. So let's look at their um, growth on their revenue growth, right? So look at the last few years. You see it on year-over-year -year growth yeah. rate. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So just start reading the years in the last um, five years or so. Okay. Negative 1.2. Uh, 1.9, negative 0 0.9, 0 0.1, negative 2.2. Right. So it's declined or stay about it's the like same. They actually yeah. disposed of some stuff. So to be fair, their organic rate is a little different than that. Um, this is after translation of currencies and doesn't count for the fact that they've gotten rid of some businesses. But having said that, it's very flat. And so there's really no growth. So mm -hmm. your return is only about the 10%. But this is the part that people miss out on. So they think, okay, I'm only going to make 10%. Mm -hmm. Well, this is where we get into interest rates and stuff. So people think a lot about interest rates when they think about bonds, but not when they think about stocks. But here's the thing. If interest rates really did decline a lot, stay low for a long time and stuff, shouldn't Omnicom be worth a lot more? And the reason for that is if this is a perpetual bond, if they can keep their, their business flat, right? Yep. This is a perpetual bond that pays itself out 5% in cash and 5% payment in kind. That mm -hmm. is additional shares that you get. Now, you don't really get additional shares, but what happens is the overall share count declines. Mm -hmm. So your, your interest in the business grows by 5% a year if it, the stock price stays this low. Plus, you get a 5% dividend. How much would you pay for a, a bond that they issue to you that is 5% payment in kind, that is it pays you more bonds, and 5% cash? Well, in our world of low interest rates, especially because this is a perpetual bond, if their business doesn't deteriorate, actually you pay a very high amount. And so what can happen is that if the dividend yield goes down to 2.5% or something, um, then the stock price goes up, same way as with a bond. So you could easily imagine this should be worth $100 or $110 or something like that if it was guaranteed to not have its revenue decline, especially because it's somewhat, it's protected in cases of inflation. Now, what about the argument that they were not able to grow top-line sales in a very economically favorable environment? Right. And where we're at, like sort of in the cycle of advertising and stuff like that going forward. Right. Well, that's mixed because it was favorable in the sense that um, GDP and stuff grew mm -hmm. in real terms. Yeah. But it was unfavorable in nominal terms. So one thing to keep in mind is that the inflation protection here is dramatic. So an advertising agency, uh, entertainment business, things like that will have incredibly high returns in uh, versus other stocks if we have high inflation. They'll have poorer returns in a period of deflation. So this boom that we had, this economic expansion, uh, has some of the lowest nominal returns of expansions. So if inflation was to dramatically increase, you're doing much better this way. So the reasons why you might not want to buy the stock are because you don't think it'll grow much. You don't think there'll be inflation in the future. And then you're worried about like top line growth and things like that. My biggest concerns would be if there's any chance that revenue will actually shrink over time, mm -hmm. um, real revenue. But as long as real revenue stays the same, what you have is your possibility that if you hold the stock forever, your returns will be like 10% a year. But here's the thing. If you sell it quicker, you might have much higher returns mm -hmm. if a few things happen. One, there's meaningful inflation. Or two, things get re-rated higher. Mm -hmm. But if you look on the downside, the downside is sort of like in a bond. The upside in a bond is speculatively, um, you could have things like rates could fall. And so um, I could be my bond could become more valuable. The, I could have a capital gain, right? But the long-term safety in a bond is that it'll actually pay me everything over time, uh -huh. right? So here, your kind of safe return is the more like 10% return. And your more speculative return is what will happen if um, 
uh, it gets re-rated, same as in a bond, a capital gain for it. So in this case, we can see it's really trading at, in my view, about 10 times earnings, uh, 10 times free cash flow. And actually, you can see the PE there says nine. Mm -hmm. So that's very cheap. So if it gets re-rated, could it be re-rated to 18? Sure. Let's look at the long-term chart. Now, the last 10 years have been cheap, but let's look of the at- stock? Of the stock. We can look at key ratios, I think, can do it. Uh Oh, you so want to look at the actual chart? Okay, yeah, yeah. I was going to say we can- I'm a visual person. All right, let's look at key ratios. Yeah, but it, the problem with the chart is that it isn't adjusting for uh, share count stuff. So in the long-term chart, obviously, is good mm -hmm. since 1993 and stuff. But the 10-year chart is poor. And if we look at key ratios, though, I think we can see if we go down to valuation metrics, yeah. So these would be useful. Mm -hmm. So valuation metrics, you can see what was the P historically. It looks like uh, 15, 12, 13, 19, 17, 16, 17, 15, 12, and then 13. So it's not a shock to people that this stock is cheap now uh -huh. because its PE is nine. Yeah. Um, and then price to sales is even more useful. And what was that? It was at. It's range from, looks like, so it was one, then 0 0.88, 0 0.92, 1.31, 1 1.25, 1 1.2, 1.3, 1.1, 1.07, 1 1.2. Right. So that's a more reliable statistic, but still price it's to telling sales. you price to sales. Yeah. So it's much better long-term to use price to sales for an idea of how overvalued or undervalued it is to eliminate the cyclical mm -hmm. aspect. But um, it's still telling you it might be 20% or whatever um, under undervalued. If we look at year-over-year -year growth in diluted shares, this can be helpful. You can see how many years it's had declines and how big those declines were. This is particularly helpful for the fact that like they bought back 7% of their stock in one year. Yeah. And so they dramatically did that. So to me, if we want to talk upside and stuff, although I'm not a big um, uh, believer in the stock outperforming a lot of other stocks, the chances it'll outperform the market and stuff might be pretty good in the sense that it has uh, a good investment return safety. If you hold it forever, you should get close to 10%. Mm -hmm. But the buybacks will be high returns for you at low prices. So the reason why that works better is let's say that on average buybacks are only so-so. Mm -hmm. Okay. You buy the stock today, right? The returns are very high because it's buying itself back at 10 times earnings. So it's getting a 10% yield. So you're buying it back at 10% yield. Now over time, it won't be as good. But when the stock, if the stock doubles... You just sell. Yeah, sure. So mm -hmm. your return can be much higher mm -hmm. if, because of the if way the rate it works. happens. Yeah. And that's why years. I say this to people because I don't know if people realize this as much, but a bond that pays you in cash and a bond that pays you in more bonds that pay the same yield actually are different values mm -hmm. because there's reinvestment risk in a normal bond. And yet at Omnicom, there isn't reinvestment risk in the sense that if you like the stock, they're reinvesting in themselves. And then if it gets too pricey, you just sell because mm -hmm. there's an active market for it. So it's actually much more attractive to buy a cheap stock buying back itself than to buy a cheap stock that has a high dividend yield. And I don't think people realize that. So that's another reason why stock buybacks can give you more upside mm -hmm. because it gives you the optionality that the buybacks will either be very effective because the stock is cheap or the stock won't be cheap. But if you bought it when it was cheap, you can sell out a profit. Mm -hmm. So for you, you'll do better short term than a long term investor in the stock would. So you can actually outperform the long term investment just by trading by it. flipping it. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. But you want that long term safety. The thing with most speculations, right, is that the most speculations people do, they don't have, they think about the flip, right? But they don't have the thing that if you hold it forever, you'll still make 10% a year. Yeah. 
you know, and that's very different. It's fine to speculate in a stock that you know is going to give you a 10% return if you hold it forever um, because you can sell it if it gets expensive. Yeah. But if not, you just keep it and get the good return. The problem with most speculations is they're not in something that underlying is getting giving investors that kind of return. Do a lot of people reach out to you about Omnicom? A lot of people do reach out to me about Omnicom. It's very cheap looking. I do warn people about the revenue growth is so poor. Um, because you said in a recent podcast, a lot of times if you don't buy a stock, it's because you're worried about the revenue growth. Yes. And that's my concern with Omnicom. But my warning mostly is not to people who just want a diversified basket of stocks, kind of like an index fund, safety, things like that. I think Omnicom is great for that at today's price. It's just a warning to people that in the long run, it, there are stocks that trade 15 times earnings or more mm-hmm. that I know of that I think if held forever will outperform Omnicom. So we just showed you OTC markets. I'm not convinced that Omnicom mm-hmm. at 10 times free cash flow will in the long run outperform OTC markets because at of the growth free cash flow. Yes. And not just like historically what the growth has been recently, but my projections for the long term future. So I just feel better about over the counter. Um, securities as a business than I do about ad agencies, big ad agencies as a business. But that's true for other businesses too. There are banks and things that trade 15 times earnings, which I expect Mm -hmm. will outperform Omnicom if held forever. To be fair though, that does not mean as a speculation, they'll outperform, you know, as a Ben Graham type purchase of something that you sell in three years, I can't say that they will outperform. I'm looking at it more long-term. If I held OTC markets and Omnicom both for as long as I felt comfortable with the businesses, would I do better in OTC markets? I'm not sure. You can do the math. The math mostly says that if I'm believing that OTC markets will grow at least 5% a year faster than Omnicom, then I should buy OTC markets. Mm -hmm. And so while I'm not going to give you predictions about each one, organically, I must be thinking that OTC markets will grow organically 5% a year or better than Omnicom with sort of like a 50-50 or better probability. Otherwise, I want to be unsure about it. And I am unsure. So it just means that I'm predicting 5% or better organic growth advantage at OTC markets than at Omnicom. The math there, I should warn people though, is 100%, you know, with an infinite return on capital at both companies. That does not work if we were comparing it to Stella Jones or something. Mm-hmm. And most stocks people talk to me about, they double count the returns. So the unfortunate thing is they tell me, oh, it's trading at whatever. It's trading, like I have a free cash flow yield of 5%, plus I'm growing 10%. At an average company, you only get the 10% return. Because, because you have to reinvest. Yes. Yeah. So they say that the free cash flow is 5%, that there's a certain free cash flow or whatever. But in reality, it's all being retained to grow. And that's true with many companies. We talked about Celsius, for example. Celsius doesn't have free cash flow. It has growth. And so that's fine. But your growth uh, adjusted for the share count is your only return in the stock. So let's use Celsius as an example because that's a really good example. Um, It's not that it's bad in any way, right? But you see that its revenue growth is, say, 40%, right? And then it's um, your return in the stock will be, for a while, that 40% revenue growth less the amount of share dilution that you have. So let's say you do 40% revenue growth, but you dilute by 10% a year. Then your return on the stock will be 30% a year, which would be great. Yeah. But let's look at the multiple to double check this on the overview. Yeah. The problem here is you notice the sales, EV to sales, mm-hmm. 7.8. The problem is let's look up Monster, which is a big um, company in the same industry. Okay. What's their sales? Their sales? 8.6. 8.6, their EV to sales. So if... They get to a position of strength as great as Monster. If the market values them the same way as Monster, then theoretically, 
their growth in revenue mm-hmm. adjusted for the share count growth, which we said could be, you know, who knows, 30% could be a really shockingly high number, could be your turn. So this company could really have dramatic returns. But on the other hand, let's be careful. Monster is priced, Monster is a $30 billion company, yep. priced at 25 times EBITDA, mm-hmm. at eight times sales, yep. things like that. Those are really high prices. Could it be that monster is overpriced. Well, I mean, what about the argument that that's what all the companies in the beverage business go for? Yeah, but here's a problem. Okay, so how fast is Monster growing lately? Uh, 10-year Kager is 14%, but okay, we can look at past... Now. Yeah, I was going to say, so we could just do a Kager. Let's go $3 billion to $4 billion over the last, like, what, four years? Okay. Oops. Is that four years? Yeah. Is that right? And we have to look at the share dilution too, or or oh, it's, share buyback. It actually three year, but we could just do five years. Okay. Too. Anyway, we can see the returns are slightly double digit. Mm-hmm. So they're ten to fifteen percent a year or something like that. Um, they are fourteen uh, a few, yeah, thirteen percent. So they were they were fourteen percent uh, on average over a long time. But like just giving, let's use OTC markets again as an example to be careful about this. So they're. 14% growth over time, whereas OTC markets has a 9% growth over time. Yep. OTC markets EV to sales is what? 5.5? 5. 5, mm-hmm. And free cash flow margin is 27%. Let's check Monster now. Free cash flow margin is lower and EV to sales is higher. Mm-hmm. So much lower versus your normalized uh, sales. Now, the, the advantage with that is that you have a high return on invested capital. Yep. But of course... Uh, OTC markets has an infinite return on invested capital. When we do the math, it's hard to see how the value creation by Monster per dollar of share, uh, per dollar of sales actually exceeds OTC markets. And we could get into like that. It's kind of complicated. But if you have an infinite return on capital versus if you have a 43% return on capital and yet you have a 4% higher revenue growth over time, but your um, free cash flow margin is only two thirds of the other companies. If I run those numbers through as best I can in my head, I'm not getting greater value creation per dollar of sales at Monster than OTC markets. I'm not getting much worse, Mm -hmm. but I'm getting similar numbers. So what that shows me though as a problem is that Monster is 30% or more yeah, 30% more uh, expensive per dollar sales. Mm-hmm. So people are valuing Monster significantly more than like OTC markets. That's just a check to worry about if you're Celsius. What if the EV to sales eventually drops to OTC markets levels of five and a half times, right? Mm-hmm. So if you're at eight times now, a decline to five and a half times, you have to factor that in about what your returns might be. So what all we did here is what the upside could be, yeah. which means that Best case scenario in my mind, which is that you grow to the size of like you get as much respect in the market as Monster and you keep it forever. Um, If you do that, then your multiple will not contract in the best case, but it won't expand. So your returns will still be your revenue growth, less uh, share dilution. Mm -hmm. But for most high growth companies, you're actually going to do worse than your revenue growth. And I think that's very possible with Celsius too. In the long run, I would expect that their revenue their, their revenue growth will be higher than your return in the stock, I'm afraid. Um, now, if their revenue growth is 40% a year, uh, the multiple contracts by 10% a year, they dilute by 10% a year, well, you still get so 20% yeah. you know, type return. So it's not impossible to get really good returns. It's just that I'm warning that a lot of times I read things and they're like, well, this stock will go, this company will grow 40% a year. Yeah. So my returns will be like that. They won't, um, but it all depends on the multiple and stuff. If the multiple was much lower, I wouldn't feel that way, mm-hmm. you know? Because it's already pricing in so much. 
because if the company stays high quality, I don't expect it to um, contract. Mm-hmm. It, what it really matters is how will they value a company of that quality at the end? Like here, they'll put in Coke as an example, because here's the problem. So Coke has great economics and whatever. EV to sales is a six. Mm-hmm. The problem is that Coke is as a market cap is what only um, it's less than 10 times the size of Monster. So on that basis, let's use Monster instead of Celsius. Um, in 15 years from now, do we really expect Monster to have a higher uh, multiple than Coke? Well, if Monster keeps growing at the rate it is, it'll be the size of Coke mm-hmm. um, in terms of revenue and stuff. So 15 years from now, they kind of both have to have the same sort of multiple. So that's not a huge deal. But if we go, let's just use the Kager thing to give an example. So let's give the negative one. So let's say it was 8.6 is Monster's EV sales and then 5.9 is um, Coke's and then do 15 years. Let's do all right. So that would mean that your your returns would be 2.5% a year lower mm-hmm. um, over 15 years. And 15 years is a long period of time. But I know it's hard for people to believe, but it's very possible Monster and Coke, one that's seen as this huge growth company, one that's old line beverage company, will be seen the same way in 15 years because Monster will be so big that it'll be the Coke of the world if it succeeds and stuff. You yeah. know, th- there's not much you can do about that. So in 15 years, usually the market shifts so much in that kind of attitude that you end up with the same multiples. And that is something I warn people all the time. Eventually, the same industry, same quality business and stuff, they should end up with similar multiples. So anybody want to be careful. I've given that example a lot of times. Yeah. But like put in Tesla, for example. Here's the problem with Tesla. So what's EV to sales of Tesla? 7.7. Yep. Okay, now put in GM. But the argument is, is that they're totally different. Their technology is different and stuff like that. The economics are different. By an order of magnitude. <laughs> 0.6. I mean, what is, what, is, what is GE's operating margin on average? Yeah, 4%? Four, four, yeah. 4%? Okay. So Tesla's will be 40%. <laughs> I mean, in the future, it'll be yeah, 40%. Yeah. That's what people are saying? Okay. I don't know. I, don't, I, mean, but I don't know. It works. What else it, it works. If Tesla's, if Tesla's operating margins are 40% in the future. Mm-hmm. But if not, you should be short Tesla and long GM in the long run. Um, that trade hasn't worked out. <laughs> No, it hasn't. Yeah. But uh, uh, but eventually it will work out in a very big way unless the economics are what we just said. Mm-hmm. So unless the economics for Tesla are 10 times better. And in fact, I'm understating it because they're not 10 times better now. So to make up for the fact that you're not 10 times better a certain period of time, you have to be even better than 10 times better later. Look at Ford's operating margin. 4% is the same thing, 08 yeah. So the problem here is whether the margins will be very different. They might be. Put in Tesla again so we can see it like gross margins and stuff. So Tesla's gross margins are superior mm-hmm. um, and Tesla is also operating on lower revenue size. Um, so if we compare but the revenue is very big. The big concern for me is Tesla's revenue is so big that it's hard to see that upside. I understand what people are saying, but 10 years ago, I would have believed this argument, but I don't believe it today. I mean, around here, there's Tesla's are starting to be as common as Ford's and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so put, yeah. So put in GM for instance. All right. And GM is six times the size of Tesla now only. In what? In revenue? In revenue. Eight, six to eight times, something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I don't know. I think I have 10 times the economics of them in terms of margins and stuff in um, that many years. The, I'm not saying that Tesla stock won't do well. Mm-hmm. You have to know that. What I'm saying is the problem here is um, if we do the handicapping of it, how does buying Tesla instead of buying GM and Ford together – as stocks outperform over, say, 10 years or something, because the multiple is 10 times higher per dollar of sales on Tesla than it is on either of those companies that we just mentioned. 10 times. Mm-hmm. 10 times is almost impossible to overcome. 
if you're in the same industry. And so, and it's, it seems to me impossible to overcome if you're already one eighth or one, one sixth or whatever the size of the other company. So that's the problem that I see, unless their economics are somehow completely different. And in general, you know, as we saw, they're not. Celsius, Monster, and Coke at different periods in their history will have somewhat different economics, but their, their economics are pretty similar. I mean, Celsius's economics, if you look at how Monster's economics started, are the same. Yeah. We have no idea if Celsius days. will ever get that big, but it's the same economics. Coke's economics look a lot like what Monster's would look like if it was a mature business. They all look very similar. And so, so that's what's baffling about Tesla. What's baffling about Tesla is that when Tesla's mature, so like, let's take an example. I mean, let's say that it grows at, um, what's a slow growth for them recently? Um, well, fourteen percent one year, but um, let's say, what do you think people think Tesla will grow at? I have no idea. Twenty percent, maybe. I, I have no idea what they want or what they think. Okay, so let's say it will double every three or four years. Let's say three three years or something. Okay. Okay. So, uh, well, yeah, let's say three years. So it'll double f- um, five times in the next fifteen years. Okay. Okay. So if it doubles five times in the next fifteen years, you can do a calculator. Uh, what do we so what do we say? Sales are twenty four billion. Okay. Okay. And then double it times two. That's one, two, three, four times. Okay. So there'll be from two and a half times the size of GM. They'll be bigger than GM and four combined. Things like that. Okay. So given that that would happen, that would mean that their revenue growth that we said would be like, um, in this case, like thirty percent a year or something. Mm-hmm. Like that. So you could get to get the exact Hager. So do uh, twenty four to three ninety three over fifteen years. All right, so 20%. Mm-hmm. So it'd be 20% growth. So they grow to be by far the biggest car company around. Um, given that, the question then is what happens with the um, the uh, margin expansion, uh, I mean the um, enterprise value to sales. So we just said, so take the number we just gave, 393 million I gave, divide it by 24, a billion, sorry. All right. All right. So what that means is if that happens, I would expect the company um, in terms of its stock price to increase to double over 15 years. Okay. The reason for that is that the EV to sales is 7.7. We can do this easily. Take 16.38 divide by 10. So this is what it's telling you. It's telling you that if Tesla grows at 20% a year for the next 15 years and GM and Ford are valued the same way in 15 years, and Tesla is valued at the same level that GM and Ford are valued at, mm-hmm. then the return will be 1 to 1.64 over 15 years. So if you go to your Kager. Okay. New. 1. And then 1.64, 15 years. Your capital gain will be 3.4% a year in Tesla. Now, what does that tell you? That Tesla's a bad stock for 15 years? No. It just tells you that it's nearly impossible to figure out a way that Tesla outperforms GM and Ford over 15 years as a stock, mm-hmm. even though I, we just did a calculation where Tesla grows 20% a year faster than the other ones. Because remember, I didn't give them any credit for growing at all. So if Tesla can grow faster than GM and Ford for like 20% a year over the next 15 years, uh-huh. that gives you something where maybe Tesla outperforms GM and Ford as a stock by a couple percent a year. The problem is just that if you stay in Tesla indefinitely versus staying in GM and Ford indefinitely, it's very hard to figure out how you make more money in Tesla. Tesla as a business, is it very likely to outperform GM and Ford? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And Tesla as a stock, is it likely in a short term to outperform it? Maybe. We don't know. But in the very long term, hard to come up with any argument where Tesla as a stock outperforms those two as a stock, absent them entering bankruptcy or something like that happening to them. That's very negative. Remember when he was going to take the company private at 420? 
Yeah. You know, it was a good deal for shareholders that he didn't. Yeah, it definitely was. Definitely was. Cool. Well, I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with Jeff and I on the Focus Compounding Podcast. We appreciate all the support. A rating review goes a long way for us. But more importantly, if you want to hit that subscribe button, both on YouTube and on the podcast side of things, that would go a long way for us as well. I thank everybody so much for tuning in and we will see you in the next podcast.